So if you would stand, I'd like to read the passage from today's uh, Luke 17. Luke 17, we'll begin in verse 20. Thank you guys for remembering and adjusting to the time schedule. Appreciate it. Had a lot of folks here the first service, and uh, so it, good start here. So thank you. Luke 17, beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, and that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The word of God. Please be seated. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees the basic question, when? When is the kingdom of God coming? When will all things come to an end? When will your kingdom come in its fullness? And that is the question which a surprising number of us have also. Surprising number of people today are asking the question, when Will everything end? When will the end times be? What are the signs? In fact, in 1995, Tim LaHaye and Dan Jenkins, Jerry Jenkins, wrote a book called Left Behind. That was the first of 16 books that they wrote over the next 12 years, and those 16 books sold 65 million copies. So is there a lot of interest today in when is Jesus coming back, and when will the times be fulfilled? Yes, there is enormous interest. Ironically, Jesus not only doesn't tell us exactly when he's coming back, but he underscores that no one except the Father in heaven, not even the Son of Man, but no one except the Father knows exactly when it is. There are some signs of indication, but no one will know. And his basic point is be ready at any time. Be ready. So Jesus is asked, when... Will the kingdom of God come? And what does he say? Well, first of all, he says, 
Well, the kingdom of God is already here. It is in the midst of you. The kingdom is here. But then later in the passage, he is talking as if, well, uh, in a future day, the Son of Man is going to be revealed. So it's like the kingdom is here, and yet it's not here. Or as some put it, the kingdom of God is already, and it's not yet. It is already here in some sense, but it is not yet here in the full sense. Now, in the Old Testament, they knew that a king would come. They knew that a kingdom would come. They knew it would be a glorious thing, but they did not get that it would be in two movements, that there would be a first coming of Jesus, and then there would be a second coming of Jesus. And the first coming of Jesus, there was no sort of political kingdom and, and, and overturning society, but, but the king came to purchase our, sin, our sins and to set us free from our sin. He came as a servant king. Second coming, he's going to come as a conquering king to rule and to judge. And so it was in these two movements, and that wasn't completely clear in the Old Testament. So when is the kingdom of God coming? Well, it's already here. It's in your midst. And it is coming again. It is coming in its fullness. Now, at this point, church, let me just pause and let's understand as well as we can what the term kingdom of God means. Because we will not get Jesus, we will not get the Gospels, we will not even get the Bible unless we have a good understanding of the kingdom of God, and it is somewhat of an elusive term. Now, when we first look in the Old Testament, we see references to the kingdom of Israel, to David's kingdom, to when they divide into two kingdoms, to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and those are the kind of kingdoms that we're familiar with earthly kingdoms, political kingdoms. But the Bible in the Old Testament also begins talking about this other kind of kingdom, and it refers to it as the kingdom of God. So, so what's that? We've got, we, we can understand the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and these earthly kingdoms with earthly kings, but the kingdom of God? Is this the rule of God? And what does that mean? And, and throughout the Old Testament, there were these references that, yeah, you've got some kings here, but one day there's this Messiah king that's coming. And uh, he's going to set these people free. And he's going to bring justice. And there's going to be a, a, a new day when the, when the Messiah king comes. Now, let, let's understand that term Messiah, uh, Hebrew, Mashiach, Greek, Christos, means the same thing. It means anointed one. And it's referring to the king. Do you remember many of you when David was chosen king by Samuel? Do you remember what he did? He didn't put a crown on his head. He poured oil on his head. That was a symbol in ancient Israel for the king. He was anointed, chosen. Uh, the Holy Spirit's oil was poured upon him. Now, in our day, in the last centuries, uh, there is the coronation of a king when a crown is placed on. You remember Napoleon famously took the crown from the Pope's hand and puts it on himself. You know, this coronation. That's the same as in Israel with the anointing. And the term Messiah and the term Christ just mean anointed one, the king. Jesus is the king. And do you remember when Jesus shows up on the planet and begins his ministry? What's the first thing he says? Doesn't he say, behold, the kingdom of God is here? The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. Repent. Turn from your sin and from, repent. Come back because the kingdom is here. 
And his whole message revolved around the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God. It was not a reign in places, but in people. Now, that's the tricky part for us. We think of kingdoms, we think of, you know, a territory you can see on a map. But not this kingdom. This is a, the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom inside the hearts of men and women, inside our lives. When we trust Jesus as our king, as our savior, he comes inside. And it is a kingdom over people, the reign of God over the lives of people. Not a kingdom of power and armies and parliaments and that kind of thing, but a kingdom of love and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's that kind of king. The first time he came, he came to purchase our freedom from sin, die on a cross for us as a suffering servant. He's coming again, though, to bring in the kingdom in its fullness. The kingdom is in your midst. It's already here, and the kingdom is coming. Now, that explains both the miraculous and the suffering that we see around us because the king is here. Because the kingdom of here, we see miraculous things. We saw it in the New Testament. We see it today. We see God healing. A uh, medical doctor in our church, if it's so just told me how this past Thursday, you know, he's been declared completely cancer-free. We see incredible things here. We see the kingdom of God expanding rapidly in places like Cuenca, Ecuador, and around the world. But we also see suffering and evil and pain because the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness. We see that, uh, that, that mixture, that, that paradox. Now, Jesus, his message was the kingdom. In Matthew 4, there is a summary statement of Jesus' life right before the Sermon on the Mount. And it says that Jesus went around, went all over the country, healing, teaching in synagogues, and preaching the kingdom of God. His rule is here. The kingdom is at hand. And then in Matthew 5, 3, when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, his greatest sermon ever, how does he begin it? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, because theirs is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, those who humble themselves before the king, bow their knee, admit their need for a savior, they're part of the kingdom. And he goes on in that passage and talks uh, uh, more and more about the kingdom. In fact, the next chapter when he teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, may your kingdom come. So there is this future element. It's in your midst. Lord, may it come. May it come in its fullness. And then a little bit later, he's, he, he closes that prayer. For, for thine is the kingdom, the rule, the reign, the authority, the power, and the glory forever. Later in that same chapter, 633, very important statement about the kingdom. When Jesus says to his disciples, to each of us, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things we added to you. So he is giving us our priorities and our mission. We not only spread the kingdom, but we seek the kingdom. We surrender to the king. We serve the king. It's all about the king. Now the parables, so many of them involve the king. When the book of Acts starts, uh, Jesus during the 40 days of resurrection says he's talking about the kingdom. When the book of Acts ends on the other side, the last verse says Paul spends two years in prison in Rome talking about the kingdom. The kingdom, the reign, the rule, the sovereign authority of God on planet earth and the lives of people. And we help spread the kingdom. We don't beg people around us to come into the kingdom. We announce the good news that a king has come, none other than God in the flesh, 
And he died for our sins. And you can be part of the kingdom. And he's one day going to establish his glorious kingdom that is going to be so good. It is going to be all that you have ever longed for. Now, that's a little bit difficult for those of us here in the United States. Now, if we were in Somalia and, and some other places, we would be longing for the next world and this world. But here in the United States, most of us got plenty of food, plenty of clothes, got nice warm houses, jobs. You know, we got, uh, well, I started to say we have Bluebell ice cream, but we don't have Bluebell anymore. We uh, may get it one day. Uh, you know, life is pretty cush for us here in the United States. And so uh, there's not the longing for the kingdom in its fullness that there is in other places. But what I want to remind you of, that as nice as your home might be, and as good as the food might be at those restaurants, that everything that you most deeply long for will be found in the kingdom of God one day. Sort of like the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have read those so-called children's books. Uh, there is a unicorn, Jewel the Unicorn, in the last book who says this. She says, I've come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land I've been looking for all my life. Friends, what you have been looking for all your life is found in the kingdom of God one day. And it will be so good. It will be so good. And there will be no more death or pain or suffering. So the kingdom, not a political kingdom, the rule, the reign of Jesus in the lives and the hearts of people, it's a rule of love. It's a rule not like earthly kings who send out their people to die for them so they can get more power and land. But it is a kingdom in which the king comes to die for his people and pay for their sin. But one day he'll come back in judgment. He will judge the living and the dead. He is the king. Make no mistake. All righty. Jesus is asked, when is this kingdom coming? He says, it's already here. It's in your midst. But then he goes on to say and describe, well, there's going to be a coming kingdom as also. Now in verse 24, one of the things he's going to say about this coming kingdom, this is now the, the second coming, the fullness of the kingdom. One of the things about it is that when Jesus comes back the second time, that time we don't know when it will be, there will be no doubt about it that he's here. Verse 24 says that for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now, there have always been people claiming to be the Messiah. You know, I'm the second vision. And most of them, just about all of them, we, we count them as lunatics. In fact, when Jesus was alive on the planet, there were 40 people running around during his lifetime claiming to be the Messiah. There have always been claimants for a Savior running around. When Jesus Christ comes again, we won't have to guess. He will light up the sky. Every eye will see him. There'll be no doubt. And every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there'll be complete clarity that Jesus has come back. Now, think about this passage. Jesus has not yet died. We're in Luke 17. Crucifixion will be about Luke 22 to Luke 23. So he's headed to Jerusalem to die. And he's asked about the future kingdom. He says, it's going to be glorious. But first I will die. Verse 25, he says, but first he, the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus was so clear 
The people of Israel were expecting a political king to throw off the Romans, put the Davidic kingdom back in its glorious days. He says, that's not why I'm here the first time. I'm here to die. Pay for your sins. He humbles himself, the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2 says. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. He humbles himself, the Father exalts him. That is exactly a spiritual principle of the universe for you and me. Everyone who exalts himself, Matthew 23, 12, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That is, we lie low and exalt Jesus. We don't try to make our name known. We don't try to impress others with ourselves. We lie low and exalt the king. That is our calling. That is our purpose. So what does Jesus say? It's going to be glorious when the king comes back. But first, I'm going to die and be rejected. Now at this point, Jesus has these uh, parallels with the final days to the days of Noah, back in Genesis 6 through 9, and to the days of Lot, back in Genesis 19. Now, this is sobering imagery, sobering uh, message here. Verse 26, he says, likewise, no it doesn't, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Okay, the, the kind of life right before Noah and the, and the ark, remember God told him to build the ark for 120 years, he built the ark, people were ignoring him. He was saying there's going to be a judgment coming. And, and what were they saying? It will never happen. You're crazy. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So what was the days of Noah like? Well, there was a lot of wickedness. Genesis makes that clear. But that's not Jesus' point. They were just eating and drinking, marrying and, getting mar and, and being given in marriage. In other words, they were preoccupied with everyday life and ignored the kingdom of God and the coming judgment. Then he goes on and makes that point again, in case they didn't get it. Verse 29, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this a convicting passage. I mean, that's not bad stuff, eating and drinking, building and planning and marrying and getting married. Those are, those are fine stuff. Those are good things. But clearly, they were preoccupied with those things, and they were forgetting the things of God. They were not seeking first the kingdom of God. And friends, we see that all around us, even in the church, even among Christians, that we can be preoccupied, that his most important things is making money and building up retirement and remodeling your house and, and how the answer is going to do. And those aren't bad things, but they're not life. They're not life. And Jesus says, when I come back, that's what people are going to be doing. They're going to be focused on the things of the world and not on the things of God. Many of you are familiar with the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Died about 10 years ago. He was Russian. 
He was one of the great literary figures who had great influence during communist Russia. In fact, he had such impact upon the nation that eventually, before the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, uh, the Russian government kicks Solzhenitsyn out of the country. Probably caused too much of an uproar to just kill him. So Solzhenitsyn, this literary figure, had uh, been sentenced to Siberia prison camp And by reading the writings of Fyodor Dostoevsky, you know, crime and punishment from high school English, uh, Brothers Karamazov, some say the greatest novel ever written, Fyodor Dostoevsky was a strong believer. And through reading his writings, Solzhenitsyn uh, becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, follower of Jesus. Uh, While he was in prison, uh, after this, he is miraculously healed of cancer when the doctor's had given up on him. And then sometime later, he is uh, uh, kicked out of his country. He's kicked out of his country. He later wins the Nobel Prize. He later wins the Templeton Award, many prizes, worldwide fame. Um, During the Templeton Address, he says this, over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing the number, a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. And this is what they said. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened to our country. Men have forgotten God. He goes on. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and I've already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble of that revolution. He says, but if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the communist revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Men have forgotten God. Long before that, Abraham Lincoln, in 1863, declares that the United States ought to have a national day, an annual day of thanksgiving, in which we specifically give thanks to God. When Abraham Lincoln, probably our greatest president, declared this day of thanksgiving, he said this. He said, we have grown in numbers, power, and wealth as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. 152 years ago, 152 years later, that problem is magnified and multiplied. People throughout our country, one day, you know, maybe it could have been said that we lived in a Christian society, but no more. Our culture largely ignores God and pushes God, not only out of schools, but out of everything they can. And hence, we have all kind of barbarity, sexual barbarity, trying to redefine marriage, most tragically, the the, the slaughter of unborn babies, and on and on. We have forgotten God. But the tragedy is, is that the church looks just like the world in almost every way. There are no distinctive lives in which we see ourselves not primarily as the citizens of this world, but as the citizens of the kingdom of God, bound together with brothers and sisters all over the planet. And we seek first the kingdom because that's what we were made for and that's what we long for. Do you seek the kingdom of God first?
Are you just like the days of Noah, just like the days of Lot, being preoccupied with the things of this world? Is there any real difference in the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way your values, your beliefs, than non-Christian neighbors and colleagues at work? Jesus goes on. More challenge in verse 31 when he says, on that day, that is the day when Jesus Christ comes back, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. She could not let go of the things of this world. He says, when there's the return of Jesus, you're on your housetop, you're out in your field, don't go back for the things of this earth. Look, the biblical perspective, things of this earth, enjoy them. But they are so temporary, they'll burn. Hold them loosely. Grasp on to the things of God. Care about the souls of people. That's what should really matter to you. He goes on with more warnings, 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, that's another one of those paradoxes. The way up is down. You know, he who exalts himself will be humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus also says several times in the Gospels, language like this, if you try to keep your life or save your life or hold on to your life, you're going to lose your life. You are not going to experience real life. But if you will give your life away, if you'll lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you will gain real life. That is what Jesus Christ says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. One more strong warning beginning in verse 35, 34. I tell you, and that night, that is the night he comes back, and that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. One will be taken in rescue. Other will be left in judgment. And they said to him, by the way, that other will be left. That's the, the concept that gave the titles Left Behind series. One will be left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Remember, our passage starts with, when, Lord? And it ends with, where, Lord? Where will this happen? He's already said it's going to be everywhere, all over the earth, wherever the dead bodies are, the vultures gather, all over the planet, there will be judgment coming. Make no mistake. What does Jesus tell us in this passage? Well, he tells us about the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of Jesus over the lives of people. There is a king. Seek first his kingdom, his agenda, his dreams, not yours. The kingdom is already here. The kingdom is coming in its fullness. It's already, it's not yet. But then he says there's a, this second aspect that it's not yet here. What's it going to be like? When? Where? He says, you don't know exactly when. Be ready. Be ready. Don't be preoccupied with the things of this world. Church, I would only assume that in lands where you could get beheaded, if you were a follower of Christ, Syria, or in lands where you're starving to death, that um, it is easier to not be preoccupied with the things of this world. But that's not where you and I live. And it is a challenge. 
But this is the command of our King and our Savior. And all over the world, all over this church, there are men and women, followers of Jesus, who are not preoccupied with the things of this world. They can enjoy them, but they hold them loosely. They give freely. They seek the kingdom. They are passionate to spread the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Join them. Join them. C.S. Lewis said about the coming of the kingdom. He said, the greatest thing is to be found at once post as a child of God, living each day as though it were our last, but planning as though our world might last a hundred years. Jesus could come tomorrow, but it could be in a thousand years. We don't know. You might know that uh, all of my lifetime, there have been people saying, well, it's this date. It's this coming. When I was a new Christian at Rice University, the hot book out in Christian circles that sold, I think, some 13 million copies was the late great planet Earth. Went to the same seminary I went to, and, and there's a lot of good in that, but, but any tying of current events to biblical passages is a, is a fragile thing to do, ten, a tenuous thing to do. Be careful. Every generation throughout church history, just about, has felt it's going to be in our day. There have been some of them, it's going to be in our day, just as there are, well, maybe it will be. Be ready, but maybe it will not be. Be planning as if the world will last forever or 100 years. I understand that Martin Luther had two dates on his calendar. Today, that day. And those are the two days that matter. Not tomorrow. Forget what lies behind. Not what's going to happen next week and worry and fear and that kind of thing. Today, enjoy the presence of God and serve Him. In light of that day, He will come and reveal Himself and every knee will bow. Probably my favorite perspective on the coming of Jesus is one that from time to time I state here. It's Martin Luther's again who said, live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming again tomorrow. And that is a great summary. Live your life as if Jesus just died yesterday. And everything we do is an act of gratitude for a bloodstained cross because we got a Savior. But live as if he rose this morning. We are the resurrection power of Jesus. But also live as if he could come tomorrow. Come, Lord Jesus. If we thought he could come tomorrow, it would change everything. Stand with me, please. Friend, maybe you're in the room and you have never taken the first step to get ready. You have never come to a Savior and humbled yourself and said, I need a Savior. Would you forgive me, Lord, for my sins? Friends, you need, as the very first step to get ready for the coming King, you need to embrace Him now as your Savior. You will face Him as judge in the future unless you flee to Him now as your Savior. And He holds open arms. Come, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come. Breathe a prayer right where you're standing. Jesus, would you save me for my sin? I am so sorry. Thank you for loving me. Lord, uh, for most of us who have already done that, 
Many of us here, our lives are so lukewarm, so compromised that there is little if any difference between us and the non-Christian friends and neighbors. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. Lord, help us to understand the stakes of eternity and the coming kingdom. And may we live in light of it. All in. All in for a Savior. Lord, we need your grace. And we pray together in Christ's name. Amen.